You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. Hello, this is Dr. Del Rosso, and it's a pleasure to bring you this podcast program today, Derms and Conditions, and hopefully you've been enjoying some of the previous podcasts. But today we definitely have a highlight. Uh, it's a pleasure to have on Dr. Neil Baccio, who is a longtime friend, and we're not going to talk about the Green Bay Packers, but we're both very, very uh avid Green Bay Packer fans, but we're not here to talk about that. Neil is a wealth of knowledge and has a lot of clinical experience and also research experience. He's director of clinical uh, dermatology at Therapeutics Clinical Research in San Diego. And he also happens to be the current vice president of the American Academy of Dermatology. So he does a lot for our profession and to help us as dermatologists. But we're gonna focus on some clinical areas today because I have questions for him. So I'm dialing into Neil now, and I'm sure he's gonna pick up because he always does when I call. So Neil, it's a pleasure to have you on today with Derms and Conditions, and thank you for joining us. Absolutely, how are we doing there over there? Well, we're doing great. So I, I, a situation that, uh, that, that I've run into, and we're here, we hear a lot about episodically in dermatology are issues related to sunscreen use, where there's something that's published in the lay press or whatever that, that gets out there where patients will come in with questions, reasons why they shouldn't use sunscreens. So how do you address some of those things, especially some of the recent concerns that have come up? Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate when we've, really come in such a long way with sunscreen technology and, you know, the elegance of a lot of the different vehicles and the utility of sunscreens. We have so many different ingredients, including with photolysis. Now we can use in both photo protection and a little bit of prevention. Uh, So it's really unfortunate when when patients are getting their information from the wrong sources. And, you know, social media has done a bad job of, you know, poisoning patients against sunscreen almost to the point of, you know, a new generation of anti-vaxxers. And we also get you know a lot of bad information from you know biased groups like the environmental work group, you know who claim to be you know the you know pilgrims for patient safety, and yet they're they're really just bought and sold and you know doing their own type of marketing. So it's really important first and foremost to just you know let the patients air out what they think they've heard, what they what myths and misconceptions they think they're they're falling behind, and then try to work through them with some literature. You know the the Academy of Dermatology has done a great job with. Uh, sunscreen information, how to choose the right sunscreen, uncovering some of the myths, answering important questions about not just, you know, the safety of sunscreens, you know, but also now these new environmental issues like safety for the reefs, you know, the the other issues with uh, potential for cancer causing agents in sunscreen. And then, of course, you know, we, we, we still have the, the, the websites from, you know, the ASDS, uh, Skin Cancer Foundation, and a lot of other good resources that talk about uh, that, but the big, probably the biggest misconception is about vitamin D, and I think you know that all of those uh, progressives uh, of rumors that went along with vitamin D and sunscreen really did us did us a lot of damage and set us backwards. So, and you'd probably agree. I mean, we we spend more time playing defense than educating people, taking taking in the yeah. the bad information and uh, try to convert it into knowledge. Yeah, and it it starts the conversation off when the patient presents it in that way, it, it's sort of a negative conversation. And you you are on defense, spending time trying to defend something that we know uh, is so important. Are there any particular specific statements or sentences that you say to succinctly sort of make it click in their head that it's really important to photo protect, not only sunscreen, but other measures of photo protection, anything that you yeah. found helpful? Well, especially, you know, sunny climate or not, it's important to make patients realize about the long run, you know, that they got most of their sun damage 
at age 18 that's going to catch up to them in their 40s. I, I make two analogies. I make, I make sun exposure like smoking. You know, that you talk about patients who they get sunburned in their, in their kids, uh, sorry, their teenage years. It's the same as like two, smoking two packs a day. And they don't, they don't get a cancer right away. They get a cough. They get short of breath in their 30s and 40s. That's kind of the same as you know, developing photoaging signs and AKs. And then in their 50, you know, 40s and 50s, they're more likely to get lung cancer from all the smoking they did when they were younger. It's the same kind of thing with the skin cancers that show up. So I try to make that parallel. And uh, I think that sticks a little bit. The other is an analogy I get a lot of flack for, but it's uh, the, the, making the equation of uh, sunscreens like toothpaste. You know, it's like we, we, don't just, we don't use toothpaste to treat a problem. We use toothpaste to prevent a problem, right? Just like, just like you brush your teeth twice a day, put sunscreen on your skin. It should be like toothpaste for the skin. And, you know, you, you don't just brush one tooth, right? You, you brush all your teeth. And so the same example goes with not just treating sunscreen with sunscreen, you know, when you're out, you know, you got to treat the backs of your hands, back of your neck, you know, top of your feet. You're going to use spray sunscreen for the back of your legs. You know, I, I even use an example from Baywatch, you know, how they wrote off Alexander Paul's character by giving her melanoma on the back of the leg. And uh, that was that was one way that we got education about uh, melanoma on, on legs because it, uh, it was something that came up in that show. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways to to, to make the emphasis. But uh, I think sometimes analogies work a little bit better than scolding. Uh, you know, part of the equation, too, is when when it comes to kids. I mean, when, when parents are dealing with younger kids, you know, they're, they're so afraid to put anything on their kid, their skin. Obviously, they, they don't know how to cleanse and moisturize, you know, let alone put sunscreen on. So you have to remind them, you know, it's okay to use sunscreen in, in kids. You know, it's, it's okay to use, you know, sunscreen, the same ones that you might use in adults. But even more so is just you have to practice good sun protection early. You know, a lot of kids who are atopic, for example, I mean, they'll get really horrible pitoriasis alba if they're not on good sun protection. You'll get a lot of people who are, you know, the in that same prime group, like they're putting soccer outside and they're on doxycycline. You got to make sure they're protecting themselves in the sun. So a lot of different ways to, you know, to make sure that the kids are just as protected as adults, you know, for the long run. But, you know, that I think that goes without saying no matter where you are. So in addition to sunscreen and general measures for photo protection, um, we both have spent a lot of time uh, reading about and writing and presenting about other adjunctive therapies that we can use. Um, polypodium leukotomous extract, especially the firm block technology, has a lot of data. Oral niacinamide, there's some data behind that. What What's your feelings about those particular therapies and what do you tell patients they're actually doing for them if they use that in addition to sunscreen and other measures of photo protection oh absolutely well I, I think the first first two things to do is remind them that these are not drugs these are supplements that are over the counter brought to market under those guys and you know with those rules and the second thing is that it's not a substitute for sunscreen when you have them take it a half an hour before or you take a, the daily versions with uh, niacinamide that, that we use more for routine. And, you know, there are a couple of different uh, companies that support these, uh, both these agents, both ISDIN and Ferndale are, are doing a good job for bringing these to the market. I, I think the point of the equation is, is get them in a routine of either taking it a half an hour before so that they don't get sunburn if they're gonna be outside, you know, even driving on a longer trip, let, let alone, you know, surfing and skiing and whatever hiking activities are doing. But for those who are at risk for skin cancer, the addition of polypodium and uh, nicotinamide—I'm sorry, niacinamide—in that uh, uh, in that formulation is really helpful for putting that into perspective that they're doing something for the long run to, to slow down the progression of skin cancer. So, 
all of that comes into play. And it really, it really just uh, should be part of routine. We're changing your routine around, around so that we're not doing more Mosley or something. So let's move on to another area that I know you you know a lot about and done a lot of educating and have experience with both in clinical practice and clinical research. We all recognize the importance of following patients and treating actinic keratosis lesions that are present. Topical field therapy is the benefit of that. But there are a lot of conversations about changing how people utilize photodynamic therapy, incubation times, shorter incubation times, and their recommendations, the menus that people have are really all over the place. What do you feel is really beneficial and what might be actually shortchanging the effects potentially if you are using shorter incubation times? Can you summarize your feeling about optimal use of PDT for actinic keratosis and and photo damage? I, I think, you know, we we've learned a lot from the labels of both the blue light and the red light equations that came at different times. You know, the original photodynamic therapy with blue light and 20% ALA was for 14 hours, which, you know, used to be a pretty taxing thing to do for patients. But at the same time, it was, that was creating the origin of daylight PDT because we would, we would paint people with the ALA stick and then they would go home. And then the next morning they would open up the garage door and boom, there goes the, the exposure right there, they just started illuminating right on the spot. So they didn't realize that the reactions were starting on the way to the clinic to go to go get the actual light treatment. So that was probably the origins of, of, of daylight, you know, actually coming into play. But, you know, two, I, I found that the you know two hours for blue light, three hours for red light is in this day and age where you can have patients, you know, work in the in the clinic, you know, give them a Wi-Fi code and, and let them do their job. You know, a lot of them are not so resistant to, oh, I've got to get outside and I've got to get back to work, right? And they also know what's coming when they come with the erythema. But, you know, logarithmically, you need 60 minutes to get about 60% conversion of exogenous ALA to portoporphin 9. Whereas with two hours, logarithmically, you get the you get 100% conversion. So to me, that two hours makes sense as, a, as kind of a benchmark of how long you should have people incubating in the hour. And then same with three hours with the 10% ALA gel, you know, seems to be the magic number. Again, I, you know, I think photodynamic therapy is underutilized in our specialty. I think it's underutilized not only for actinic keratosis, but for acne and for photoaging. And uh, some of it goes back to, you know, the offices having to take on the overhead, not understanding the building, the billing, not under, understanding the, you know, the dynamics, like the prep, you know, the, the post work and, and just like we do with surgery and everything else. I mean, we have to have good, you know, counseling on how to handle what to do the days before, you know, I've had, I've had patients come in and say, well, I want to have blue light today, but I'm, I'm catching a plane at seven o'clock. It's like, we're not doing that. Right. Or, or, they, or they got their, you know, or they've got their kid's wedding uh, in two days. Oh, my, my kid's getting married in two days. So I want to do blue light. I say, you know, you're buying. You have to you look like the guy from Raiders of the Lost Ark where his face melted off. So, so what you mentioned prep, what, what tips do you have on the, the prep technique? Like, do you have them utilize retinoids before or any other kind of treatment before the prep actually before the procedure? Uh, and then the aftercare, what tips do you have on that? Cooling the skin or not? Some yeah. of the, you know, occlusion with the application on extremities or not? Some of those things. Can you bring that forward? The first part of the equation is what are they already doing? So if they've already done retinoids or they're on retinoids, you keep them on until about a week before. If they've done or if they're doing anything 
therapeutically for the AKs, like 5-FU or Amiquimod or Terbenabulin or anything else, I would have them stop that probably two weeks before and try to make a two-week rotation cycle between the next time they start. And then, you know, a couple of days before, I like to put people on antihistamines, some non-sedating antihistamines, you know, probably like the five milligram uh, loratadine or whatever you want to call it, just something non-sedating, and then have them double that dose on the day up. Because antihistamines really help reduce the mast cell infiltration into the uh, the treated field, because that's what really is accounting for a lot of the edema, the erythema, and some of the brisk local skin reactions. So having them pre- you know, prep a little bit like that. But in the office, you know, if you're doing red light, you know, the, the, the mandate is to do curatage on the, on the spots, which I think is, is helpful, but it also, again, it's going to add to a little bit of discomfort. Um, some of it also involves, um, you know, things like a good wash. You know, they used to use acetone scrubs or microdermabrasion, not just a simple alcohol wipe and, and such. I think they, that's a good cleanse for that. But, you know, after the treatment's done, after they've done incubating, you, you really want to make sure that they have good emollients that they're working around the clock with, you know, maybe have them take a little break from sunscreen just to not add another layer of what they're putting on. Uh, but I think also, too, you know, a little bit of pain relief might help. And even for those under the light, you know, you, you may want to have a little Xanax or Alprazolam handy for those who get a little squeamish because uh, it does hurt and it gets it, people can get a little claustrophobic also. Um, and then for the next couple of days, you know, again, some compresses. You know, hypochlorous acid preparations work very well to soothe the skin. You keep that in the fridge and spray it on. And then, of course, you have some some good uh, pain relief if they need it. But I try to stay away from steroids uh, just because they, it's going to undo some of the inflammation that's necessary to preserve the benefits of the reaction. So I think that would be a, a good thing to try to avoid. What about areas that tend to be more hyperkeratotic, like the forearms and the hands? Do you occlude? Forearms, you definitely need to include. There's some studies done that are really uh, informative on the routine uh, where you debride a little bit. You can use, a, again, a curetting or you can you can use something else that's more abrasive to scrub the skin. Then you apply the medication and let it sit for at least three hours. And we're talking about you know, from knuckles to elbows. And you occlude with, uh, with a good plastic wrap and you let that sit. And that really augments the response as well as the you know, control of the of the outcome. So definitely want to include with the, um, with the extremities, even the, the pretibial surfaces also, you want to treat the same way as, as your forearms. And you can use a Mayo stand, you just put your, your legs up or you put your, your arms up and that really tends to help, you know, keep things under control as far as, you know, being visible to the light. Uh, the other part of that though, is if you do need to occlude the, uh, occlude the head and neck, it's not that hard to occlude the scalp with, uh, with a little bit of plastic wrap, but with the face, you know, you obviously want to you know, keep, forehead, you know, probably be the only part I would think about including. I don't I wouldn't do anything more than that because it's already uncomfortable as it is. Then you're gonna wrap people up in plastic and say, oh yeah, you're you know you're on you're on your own with this one now. If they think you're kidnapping them they think they think you're kidnapping them, take them to the border. It's like no we're not doing that. We're just just doing blue light. Now how often does one treatment give you the success that you want? Or how often do you need to repeat a second treatment and what's your uh spacing between of subsequent treatments with PDT? Ideally, I think PDT is every two months. Um, you could stretch it out to three, and some of the studies for AKs have shown that, especially in Europe. There are some other studies, though, that show if you do it in one month or one month apart, you can really get some good good clearance. So it really is, is variable. It's obviously going to depend on your insurance and everything else. Uh, but for me, if I, I, I am still a believer in combos. So, like, you know, I would probably treat someone for a month with topicals or freeze what's there. 
and then a month or six weeks later, set them up for, for uh, photodynamic therapy, see them back in a month and either restart the cycle or maybe have them rest until the second month, do the second month of PDT and then finish the cycle of the topical afterwards, maybe a couple of weeks afterwards. But, you know, there's some good studies that show in transplant patients that if you do uh, blue light PDT, you know, every other month for two years, you can reduce their squamosome risk by 90%. And I, that was there was a big comparison study done at the University of Minnesota that showed that. And I think I think there's a lot of validity to routine with PDT, whether you're immunosuppressed or just high risk, or especially with surface. So, so that's a, a, a special population that's high risk. But for individuals that are not immunosuppressed, you would give them probably two treatments and then see what happens down the line and decide if you need to do it at another point in time. You wouldn't be doing it every two months on every patient that you're treating, correct? Only only those that I think, you know, we're really at high risk for their, you know, they're developing screams like, you know, like weeds and they're just coming up left and right, right, you know, just to slow all that down. But, you know, again, those are probably patients you'd, you'd have to either think about hedgehog inhibitors or semiplomab also. So, I mean, there's, right. you know, the checkpoint inhibitors or hedgehog inhibitors might, might lower your threshold for those because systemic retinoids nowadays are, are just too hard to find or too expensive. Right. Oral, the oral retinoids. Right. Yeah. So that, that's very helpful. Now I'm going to ask you a question that is something that I've wanted to ask many different dermatologists. And you're the first one I'm asking this question where you're going to answer the question publicly. Can you think of an area in dermatology? You had a strong belief about a disease state and its management, and you believe that for a long time. But then you had a reversal in how you feel about that based on some new information or an observation that you made. So it's it's 180 degree reversal from what you believed before. Can you think of an example where that has occurred in dermatology? Uh, or or were you always right the first time and never well, had, that was never never was challenged? <laughs> definitely never right the first time. But I'll I'll tell you a story that that might put it into perspective. It's not so much about therapy as much as about answering the bell. And this, this goes back to when I was a third year resident and, you know, I had, uh, you know, we took call from home, obviously a term resident. And, you know, I was out at, uh, when I forget there was a, like a party at the zoo or something, I forget where I was out and I was coming home. It was about nine o'clock. And all of a sudden I get a call, a page from the emergency room. I'm, I'm, I'm like, Oh, this ought to be good. And some fourth year med student is on and, trying to explain the, you know, the, the morphology. And I'm like, okay, go ahead. This is, you know, let me know what's going on here. And he starts using, you know, well, I think he's got blisters and I think he's red, you know, typical fourth year medicine doesn't know the jargon or anything. And I said, look, you know, if, if you use the words blisters to me, I have to come in there and see what's going on. So are you a hundred percent sure there's blisters there or not? And he goes, I'm not sure, but they look like blisters to me. And so I'm, you know, I mean, as usual, I'm in t-shirt and shorts and I just didn't have time to change. I said, well, the guy's got blisters. I mean, God knows what the hell's going on. So I just said, okay. And luckily I lived close to the hospital. So I, I literally just walked. I walked over there in my t-shirt and shorts. I brought my white jacket with me. I walked into the emergency room, full blown erythema multiforme with this guy who turned out to be on, he had taken cephalex in a couple of days before this guy, he was descumating. He was, you know, look just like, you know, the burn unit candidate in that you're going to see in full thickness necrosis almost inevitably. And they were about to send him home. I said, you need to get him up to the ICU like this minute because his entire outcome is going to turn around and, you know, 
and sure enough, within I, and I sat with him literally till like four o'clock in the morning, went home and, and changed, came back and sat with him for about six hours the next day. And they're like, you're a dermatologist. What are you doing here? I said, these are the these are the medical emergencies that dermatologists never see. But when they see them, they're horrible. And sure enough, I sat there with the guy, watched him. And they were they were like, what do we do? I said, call the there was one hospital in Milwaukee at the time that had a burn unit. I said, send him. I said, you've got to get him over there. And it, as we were finding out, he had taken cephalexin because he was HIV positive. And it, this was back in the, in the 90s. And, you know, nobody said anything. And sure enough, it's so what he accelerated into full-blown uh, TEM, right, right in that 36 hours. And I was just like, this is horrible. Right. So, so is, is the is the moral of the story is when they call you and tell you it's a macular papular eruption, you still better see the patient. You right? still better see the patient. That's that that was my if you wanted a light bulb going off, the light bulb is everybody else doesn't know how we speak. So whether they can describe it or not doesn't mean you should say, ah, it'll be okay. And you go there or you get that patient in and you look for yourself. Right. Just like with melan with what could be melanoma, just what could be you know, anything else that's uh, vesicular, like zoster and things like this, you you can only trust your own eyes and your own hands. So I think, I, I, I think that right. was a good lesson. So ironically, six months later, the guy shows up at the clinic and he's asking to see me. And I'm like, oh, but, but what did I do now? And sure enough, it was, it was the same patient. He said, I just want to thank you for saving my life. And I said, holy crap, man, I thought you were dead. I said, but I thought when I left you, I was never going to see you or whatever. And sure, the guy would turn around and he was like, right as rain. I said, thank heaven for that. Cause that's, that's a lesson to learn. So I never well, forgot that, that story. That's a great way to, to sign off and to remind our colleagues just, uh, you know, we, a lot of times we have our staff answering the phone and, and you don't, you don't necessarily know what they're telling these people on the other end. And if I have a patient that I've done a procedure on, I tell them to always tell the patient we'd like them to come in. Uh, it, it, it's, it's worth it seeing the patient yourself whenever possible. So Neil, I want to thank you. Um, there's, there's always so many things that we can talk about. Uh, we certainly don't want to talk about uh, the, the Packers right now. We'll no, see what happens talking, next year. No Wisconsin sports talk. That's off no, 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 that's definitely off label. So thank you, Neil, for a great discussion. It's always enjoyable to talk to you. And I know the information will be very helpful to our listeners. I want to thank all of you for listening in today. Please access previous episodes, which you can get at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite shows. Take care and be well.